This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Today we have with us Dr. Anu Katharazin. She works at the Center of Reproductive Medicine in Texas. She is highly acclaimed as a reproductive endocrine specialist. What that means is she finished medical school. She became board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. She went on to do a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and fertility. She has numerous awards. For example, she had the highest CREOG score in her fellowship testing class. It's a test for residents. Residency. residency. Uh-huh. So she scored really well. She got the American Medical Association Foundation Leadership Award, the John M. R. Jr. MD Research Award Honorable Mention. Um, she's a National Society of Collegiate Scholars. She has a very long list of awards. She has 16 publications, numerous poster presentations. I won't go through an entire bio because it would take a long time to read the entire thing, but if you go on the website infertilitytexas.com, you can read her very long and esteemed biography. So Dr. Katharizian, thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. And when I think of reproductive endocrinology, I think of usually an older couple or older woman and she wants to have children. She sees a specialist and then they have her or facilitate her having children at an older age. However, reproductive endocrinology also deals with a whole host of other medical issues that they can help people who you wouldn't think could get pregnant, get pregnant. So the first thing we're going to touch on is diseases impacting fertility. So there are a lot of very terrible diseases that cause significant amounts of pain and misery if you have them. One example is sickle cell disease. Another example would be hemophilia and a whole host of these conditions where I've personally spoken to people who have these conditions and their lives are really impacted in a very negative way because of these conditions. And they really don't want to pass that suffering and burden on to their kids. However, they really do, would, if they could, have children without this burden they would love to have those children. So that's one of the things we're going to discuss today. So when someone comes in and they say, you know, we have this genetic issue, but we want to have children, what's your approach to them? Yeah. So if a couple comes in, you know, either having had an affected child in the past, for example, cystic fibrosis, and they come in wanting to make sure that their next pregnancy, that they don't have an infected child, basically what that involves is undergoing IVF and essentially screening embryos to see which embryos would be affected and avoiding putting those types of embryos back in. And so in that way, we can help assure their next conception will not be an affected uh, offspring. So IVF or in vitro fertilization. So what it sounds very straightforward of say, let's pretend my wife and I have a genetic problem. We come in, we see you and say, Hey, I have this, this terrible disorder. I don't want my kids to have it. I, I magically undergo IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. And then I have a healthy child, but can you walk through the steps as to how that actually happens? 
Yeah. So I tell patients, so essentially IVF, just kind of in general overview, what that means is what we're doing is we're stimulating your ovaries, the woman's ovaries, to make as many eggs as she can make. We'll essentially surgically remove them from uh, her body with a minor surgical procedure. We'll put the egg and sperm together in a lab, and then we have an embryo. And then we're able to test that embryo by doing a biopsy and send that biopsy out and essentially get back information that will tell us. Um, which embryos are affected. So to kind of go through that process in a little bit more detail, the patients will start with either birth control pills or estrogen. The point of that is to help the follicles grow together so that way we get the most eggs. Then the next step will be the patients will then take stimulation medications, which are essentially the hormones produced by the brain, FSH and LH. These hormones in normal cycles will stimulate the ovaries to make a follicle. So we're just giving those hormones in higher doses so that instead of making one follicle that month, we're going to make as many follicles as we can. And that process of taking the stimulation medications usually is around 10 to 12 days. It depends on the woman and how she responds. So then after that time period, the follicles reach the right size and then we'll trigger ovulation, which is essentially giving another injection. And then we'll time the egg retrieval to be approximately 35 to 36 hours after that trigger. And the egg retrieval egg retrieval is a minor surgical procedure. So what that involves is the patient will be under anesthesia, so she'll be asleep. And then we do a transvaginal ultrasound. But above the ultrasound will be a little needle guide and the needle will go through that. And essentially the needle will then go into each follicle and essentially aspirate the fluid out of each follicle. And each follicle has a microscopic egg that we can't see. So as we're taking the fluid out, the egg should also come with it. And then the fluid and the eggs will then go into a test tube and then we hand the test tube off to the lab and then the lab now has the eggs. Then we get a sperm specimen from the partner and um, so the same day of the egg retrieval, we put the egg and sperm together. So that's either done with what's called conventional IVF where we just put the egg in a petri dish and put sperm in the petri dish as well and then one sperm will uh, end up fertilizing the egg. The other option is what's called ICSI where we directly inject the sperm into the egg. And then after that, the egg, or sorry, the embryo will then grow for five days. Just can you clarify those two different approaches, putting the sperm in the petri dish with the eggs or where you're actually selecting out the specific sperm for the egg? Yeah, so the embryologists and andrologists will look at the sperm under the microscope and they'll pick out the best looking sperm if we end up doing ICSI. Reasons why we might do ICSI are if there's any male factor, so if there's lower motility or morphology, which is the shape of the sperm, on that sperm specimen that day, you know, we'll recommend ICSI. Sometimes if we're planning on doing the biopsy of the embryo later on, we'll sometimes go ahead and recommend ICSI. The reason is is if we were to do conventional IVF, sometimes sperm can linger outside the embryo and we just don't want that sperm to potentially contaminate our biopsy results. So we'll recommend ICSI in um, those cases. Um, other situations where we might, right, might uh, recommend ICSI are if the patient has already undergone an IVF cycle and they did conventional IVF and they didn't have any eggs fertilized. So those are some of the scenarios where we would recommend ICSI. Do, do all centers just at least offer ICSI? Yeah, most, most centers definitely offer it. It's not necessarily recommended across the board in all patients because there's not evidence necessarily to show that doing it across the board will increase success rates. So it's typically in those groups that I mentioned previously. 
that that is recommended. You know, it is something that I go over with with patients and, you know, fertilization rate would be, you know, um, the next main step we're looking at after ICSI and um, the, you know, fertilization rate is not necessarily, I mean, it is a little bit higher with ICSI, but not like significantly enough that, you know, it's necessarily recommended across the board. So, but, you know, a lot of uh, what we do is a discussion with the patients and then coming to a decision that works best for that particular couple, you know, so it's, there's there's some of that involved. And that makes sense. Another thing that kind of falls into that is um, PGS, where we do the, the uh, testing of the embryo, if we're doing it for screening purposes, where we're just looking for the chromosome number, you know, there's, it's similar in that there's not evidence to recommend it across the board, but, you know, it's something that I do discuss with all patients. And then, you know, we figure out what's best for their situation. And that makes sense. So, so you do the sperm and the egg meets mm-hmm. and then, then what happens? Then what happens? So then the embryo will have the embryo growing in the Petri dish for about five or six days. After that five or six day time point, it becomes a blastocyst. And there's a concentrated area of cells that we call the inner cell mass, and that will become the future baby. And then there's cells that are kind of circumferentially around the embryo, and that is called the trophectoderm, and those cells will become the future placenta. So we have the technology where we can biopsy some of those cells that are going to become the future placenta and get the essentially the genetic makeup of the embryo, which is called PGS or pre-implantation genetic screening. And that's where you determine which which embryos don't have that genetic issue. So PGS is looking for if there's any chromosomes that are, um, basically we're looking to see if they have normal number of chromosomes. So it's that's more of a screening of the of, of aneuploidy. So that's screening. Now there's what's called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is the scenario we talked about before where they have a known carrier status of a certain genetic disorder. And we're actually looking at the embryos to diagnose which ones are affected with that genetic disorder and then avoid putting those embryos back in. So so there is a difference between the screening and then the diagnosis. So for anyone who's listening, like right at this point, this is a very academic conversation of screening eggs and you're putting them in. But for let's just take cystic fibrosis, for example, that is a miserable disease. As far as I know, there's no cure of it for it. There theoretically there may be genetic therapy, but it's far I know like very far from actually being implemented as far as I know. Anyone's welcome to correct me if I'm wrong. And really unfortunately it's a disorder where your lungs just get clogged with mucus and you just slowly lack the ability to breathe and it, it, it you can't really be very active you have to be on oxygen you're prone to all these infections however if someone like that still they meet a partner and and they want to have children i think it's it's a great service to offer that to say well you can have children but you don't have to pass on this particular genetic burden to your children. Right. And that's so, yeah, I think I've it had... becomes it moves from this academic clinical conversation to no, here's a here's a couple that can have a healthy child. Right, right. So yeah, I've had um, couples where they've had that exact circumstance where they, you know, met somebody, started trying to build their family and then had a baby that was affected with cystic fibrosis and then realized that they were both carriers. So then they present to us trying to avoid that with future pregnancies. So, you know, that's something that we can avoid, thankfully, with our current technology where, you know, if we know that both partners are a carrier of a certain condition, you know, we can screen the embryos and avoid their next conception being an affected offspring. And and no technology is perfect. There's an error rate in everything. But what is your success rate with screening out these genetic issues that people want screened out for? 
So I believe the the accuracy rate is about ninety six percent. That's I, I think that those are very good odds. So other than than that more complicated screening for genetic issues. You also deal with a whole host of other things. So if someone is having recurrent miscarriages, that's also someone you can help, correct? Yeah. Well, there are many different causes for recurrent pregnancy loss. So that is also a workup in itself. Um, so some of the things we look for in a recurrent pregnancy loss couple is the genetics of the parents. So we start with taking a karyotype of both partners. It's essentially the um, chromosome makeup of both partners. Okay. And so we're looking for sometimes there are translocations, you know, things like inversions, things that may lead to their offsprings um, resulting in a miscarriage. So we check both partners. Karyotype is one of the parts of the workup. The next is checking the anatomy of the uterus, uh, making sure sometimes there are things called septums, which is an indentation in the top part of the uterus. So when a pregnancy implants on a septum, the blood flow supply to the septum is not as good as um, the uterine muscle. So these pregnancies tend to start, but then don't continue. And the good thing about septums is that they're usually easily treated surgically and we just cut the septum back and then their pregnancy rates go back to baseline in terms of you know conceiving. Then the next thing we want to check is if there's any uncontrolled diabetes, if their thyroid is out of also uncontrolled or prolactin levels, these things being way out of the norm can also result in miscarriages. And then we also screen for antiphospholipid syndrome and um, what that is essentially uh, clotting disorder. So if patients have this um, disorder, they're also at risk for miscarriages. So we can treat them with heparin and that can help avoid that miscarriage uh, risk. So um, yeah, th- th- these are some of the things in the workup for recurrent pregnancy loss. So if someone keeps miscarrying, you're, you're, you'd be a, the bottom line is if you keep miscarrying or so, a couple keeps miscarrying, there's definitely help for that. But like all things, sometimes you need to see someone else so the analogy I'll use in my specialty is if you're going to get a driveway paved, you're not going to just go to one driveway paver. You're going to probably see a few. And I would recommend people do that with healthcare as well because sometimes you mm-hmm. get different results. So if someone has tried IVF somewhere else and it has failed, and, and there may be a whole host of reasons for that, but let's just say that they, they've had in vitro fertilization attempts that have failed in the past, you would also see those people as well. Yeah, we do often see patients that have done treatments elsewhere and, you know, want to try with us. And so, yeah, it's not an uncommon thing. Yeah. And what is your success rate or can you give some examples of as to why you would say have success versus another clinic wouldn't? Um, well, success rate is going to be very dependent on the lab. And, um, you know, we have an excellent lab and our our success rates are um, are very good. You know, beyond that, there's a lot of just, you know, what patient feels comfortable with what provider, you know, and just trying out sometimes different providers to see where you feel most comfortable. And what exactly is fertility preservation? So fertility preservation is, for example, a patient who's maybe early 30s, single, unsure, you know, when she'll be able to start her family and wants to come in and freeze eggs. So patients will come in and we'll go over that process. It's essentially going through IVF, so going through the process I just discussed. And then when you get to egg retrieval, we'll have the eggs and we'll assess them for mature eggs. So And then we'll freeze the mature eggs. And then the process would end at that point. And then later on in life when, you know, let's say like five years after they're ready to start their family, I usually encourage couples to still try on their own you know, in the case that they're still, you know, they're able to conceive on their own. But like, let's say they're over 
at the age of 35, then I wouldn't go beyond six months. And then if they have difficulty conceiving, then they can come back and we can essentially thaw the eggs and then put the egg and sperm together. And then we have the embryo and then we can put the embryo back in. And another service, and this is something that I didn't really think about, sperm freezing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, sperm freezing is um, a lot easier compared to the egg freezing um, since the egg freezing involves going through the IVF process. But essentially, a man can come in and give us a specimen and then we can essentially freeze that sperm. So sometimes we'll see patients do that if they have, for example, like a cancer diagnosis or are about to undergo chemo or radiation. And so we can freeze the sperm in advance. So that's like a, a scenario. Um, sometimes they'll actually also, if they're ab- about to undergo a vasectomy, if they're, you know, think that they're done with their family, but they want to freeze sperm just in case. And, you know, um, sometimes they'll end up divorcing and want to conceive and later on, and they'll have that sperm there that that's something that they can use. That's probably a, a funny conversation of I'm having a vasectomy, but I'm going to freeze some sperm on the off chance. <laughs> this doesn't work out. Yeah, it is. It is so so wait, I have to ask, you know, we see it. When, uh-huh. when men come in for that, do they come in by themselves or their spouses with them or significant others with them? Um, they can they can come in by themselves and, and free sperm. And yeah. It's, what percentage it's of the time does the guy come in by himself? Just out of curiosity. Um, we often see like sometimes patients will start the infertility evaluation with their OBGYN. And so we'll often see patients just come in for the semen analysis and then go back to their OBGYN and do some treatments uh, with them first. They, like they could do like Clomid and timed intercourse. And so we actually often have uh, the semen analysis referrals come in by themselves. Oh, no, I was mostly thinking about men who have vasectomies. Vasectomies. It's, vasectomy, it's... I want my eggs frozen on the off chance. I changed my mind. I want you <laughs> It's it's more on the rare side. Um, You know, I've seen maybe like a handful, but you know, they they come occasionally. And and this is also an interesting topic as well. So you also work with same-sex couples, correct? Yes, we do. So how does that process look? So if, for example, um, two women come in, I'll still do the some aspects of the infertility evaluation, like uh, similar as I would a heterosexual couple in terms of like getting their ovarian reserve testing. We do get an HSG, to, uh, which stands for hysterosalpingogram, to check their uterus, check their tubes, and make sure there's no issues anatomically. And then they'll select a sperm donor. And depending on their, you know, ovarian reserve, that will help us in terms of what fertility treatment they may want to do. So if their ovarian reserve is more of a concern, you know, they may be more interested in IVF. But if their ovarian reserve looks okay, they may be more interested in IUI, which stands for intrauterine insemination. So we kind of discuss both options, the success rates based on their testing, and then uh, make a plan from there. And how, how often does that happen? Like, is that a frequent thing that you see in your office? Yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to put a percentage on, on these sure. kind of things, but yeah, I see, I see same sex couples, you know, a few a month, you know, so yeah, they're, I definitely see them, you know, regularly. So. Okay. And you help both men and women, correct? Yes. Yes. And then that, what does that process look like if it's two men? So if it's two men, then we need to, they need to select an egg donor. And so the egg donor, that process can be either they select a woman and she undergoes the process of IVF, or the other option is they would get eggs from what's called an egg bank, where women have already previously undergone IVF and frozen their eggs. So at that point, all they need to do is just pick 
who they would want to select as their egg donor. And then we just bring the eggs to our lab and thaw the eggs. And so that process, since they've already been frozen and the woman has already gone through IVF, it's kind of a, a quicker process in terms of getting the eggs. Then they would need to decide um, who is giving us the sperm. Sometimes they have one partner in mind. Sometimes they both want to do like half and half and you know, for the first pregnancy, they'll put back an embryo from one partner and the second pregnancy, they'll put back an embryo from the second partner. And then they need to select a surrogate. So that's the person who would be carrying the pregnancy. So there's kind of those steps involved, essentially. So wait, where do the egg donors come from? So the egg donors are just women who have made the decision to donate their eggs. And so sometimes patients will just present saying that that's what they would like to, to do. And so otherwise there are some, there are agencies that we sometimes work with who have, you know, connections to the egg donors that way. And so they select through the agency who they would like to donate their eggs. So it's kind of a, a roundabout topic. So when a couple goes through in vitro fertilization, there are an excess number of embryos than there are babies made. So sometimes, sometimes, sometimes there, there are. Yeah. So, I mean, so if you're talking about the egg donor situation, then yeah, yeah sometimes so like, there are excess. Like yeah. Like a couple comes in and the couple, you do the in vitro fertilization, you have a few viable eggs or embryos. I don't know. Explain that process. Yeah. So, okay. Let's say they're coming in with infertility, you know, the woman's, let's say, you know, 40. So, you know, I, so I tell patients going through IVF, there is a normal kind of attrition process that happens. So let's say you get, you know, 10 eggs at the egg retrieval time point, then not all those eggs may be mature, you know, eggs. So let's say like nine eggs are mature. So then you fertilize those eggs and then a normal fertilization rate is about 50 to 75%. So then you may have, you know, five or six, let's say that fertilized, and then they need to grow to day five to that blastocyst stage. So then not all of those five or six embryos may grow to day five. You know, you may have, you know, four or so that, you know, make it to day five. Then you biopsy those embryos, not all of them may be genetically normal. So you may end up with like two or three that are normal at the end. So it just depends on the number that you start with and the number of eggs that you get at egg retrieval will, you know, the more the better. So that normal attrition process, you, you know, end up with more at that blastocyst, blastocyst time point. But if, if you do have excess viable embryos, if that's the right term, mm-hmm. People can mm-hmm. donate those to infertile couples. So sometimes what happens, so we'll put the first embryo back in and, you know, typically there's like a 60 to 70% success rate. So if they do conceive, then that's great. And then let's say they have two embryos still frozen. So if they're thinking that they want to have, you know, two kids, then they could come back in whenever they're ready for their second child. Sometimes that's like a year from now. Sometimes that'll be three years from now, just depends. And then when they come back, you know, three years older, let's say they're their embryos are frozen at that three years ago age. So all we need to do is essentially thaw the embryo and put the embryo back in her uterus. So the fact that she's aged three years doesn't, you know, affect the the embryos have not aged three years. So sometimes patients will, you know, keep them frozen and, you know, have that plan in place. So now let's say, you know, with that 60 to 70% success rate, let's say they fall into that 30 to 40% chance where they don't conceive. And then if that were to occur, they don't need to go through IVF again. And we already have a couple extra frozen embryos, so we could just thaw the next one and put the next one back in. So it's not always that, you know, they're excess. Sometimes 
parents will still need them either for if they don't get pregnant or for their future pregnancies. But say they, they and this is where I'm getting at, I'll say they have the number of kids that they want and they're still saving right. one extra embryo for floating around. Where I'm going with is if they want to, they can donate that to a couple that really want a child. Yeah, yeah. The, there are a few options. They could donate it to another couple. They can donate it to research or they could discard them. Those are the, the general yeah, options. Sure. You also, you were talking about, you you do a discount for military personnel and you take the TRIA. Is it TRIA? TRICARE. TRICARE, uh-huh. that's it. Yeah, we try and you know work with TRICARE military patients and um, do what we can to help them. So yeah, we offer them, I believe it's a 10% discount on, on treatment. So what are some of the things that you wish people knew about your specialty that they typically don't? So I would say, you know, I wish people knew that, you know, sometimes I get patients that present later on in life, like after the age of 45, where it becomes very challenging to conceive, especially with your own eggs. So I wish that, you know, patients kind of were more aware about declining ovarian reserve as age increases. So it's always better to seek treatment sooner rather than later. Sometimes they see celebrity pregnancies happening at age like, you know, 49, 48, and think that these are spontaneous conceptions when in reality, they're more likely not the case and, you know, may be donor egg pregnancies. So just having more, you know, awareness about that. Is there anything that you want other, say, medical specialists to know about your specialty? Because it was educational for me. It was very educational for me because I just deal with Uh my specialty, but I I have minimal interaction with reproductive endocrine specialists. You know that there's just a lot of, there's a lot of uh, advancing technology with our specialty. There is the you know, the ability to do what we talked about earlier with if they have genetic conditions, if they're carriers for genetic conditions, that we can avoid these type of pregnancies, you know, so there's just a lot that really amazing things that we can do with the technology that we have. No, that's fantastic. This, the whole, um, I didn't know that we were quite there in, in medicine where you can really select out really painful and miserable genes that you're carrying and not pass on that burden to your children. Yeah, absolutely. So, what are some ways that people can get in touch with you because you're on social media, correct? Yeah. So so my practice, again, is called the Center of Reproductive Medicine. We're in Houston, Texas. I'm on social media. I am on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. I've um, started doing educational videos. I just find that, you know, infertility patients have a lot of similar questions in terms of like, what is the workup for in- infertility? How do the treatments work? So I've been trying to kind of put together kind of a natural evolution of these topics. And I just posted my first few recently with how does pregnancy happen and what are causes of infertility. So I'm putting up these kind of videos to you on YouTube, but you can also find the links through Instagram and Facebook. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. And again, we'll include all of your contact information in the show notes. And if people need a consult with you, how they can get in touch with you. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.